All right, thanks for listening to the new episode of Yoshi Den. I'm back in Los Angeles at Rec Hall's residence, apartment. Rec, thank you. Um, you've been very supportive of me last uh, three or four months. Let me stay at your place and record episodes, and I, I really appreciate it. So um, once again, on the previous podcast, you heard me talking to Rec about possibly working in Japan, teaching J- English in Japan, or uh, other jobs in Japan. So any, if you if you have any information that could help Rick, we both appreciate it. And Rick, what's your Twitter account? It's at Toastubber, T-O-E-S-T-U-B-B-E-R. So it's uh, Richard Hall, Rick Hall, and uh, it's yeah. Toastubber's uh, Twitter account. And for whatever reason you can't contact him, you can always email me at dumbyoshi at gmail.com, <laughs> D-U-M-B-Y-O-S-H-I at gmail.com. So I, I have another guest, but first I want everybody to know that I'm dedicating this episode to our good friends up in Napa Valley, Camille Cinema, to the Buck family. It's on 1340 Main Street, San Helena, California, 94574. It's the only um, single screen cinema up in Napa Valley area, and they just reached 100 year anniversary this year. And Kathy Buck is a wonderful person, and she's supporter, uh, very supportive of the show, and also support her by attending Camille Cinema. And my my understanding that uh, Kathy is such a um, wonderful person that Robert Reffer and um, Francis Ford Coppola have premiered their movies at her cinema in St. Helena. All right. Anyway, here tonight I have my friend David Chen. Chen, <laughs> I, I don't say it right. I apologize, Dave. I like the variation, though. <laughs> um, so, D- Dave, Dave, Dave is. Uh, um, you contacted me in. Uh, well, what is it? About a week, two weeks ago, we talked to Steve Catani, my former worker at Evil Angel. Mm-hmm. Both of you are a fan of the uh, movie. Uh, Rick is a big fan of movies as well, and I'm not as knowledgeable as you guys, but I really enjoy talking to you guys. So, this is the second one we're doing, and today because of uh, um, Rick's suggestion we're going to cover David Cronenberg and I <clears throat> I probably I'm, I'm being overly generous I probably see maybe one third of it but can we take turn Rick you then Dave why did you pick this I mean I like his movies the ones I've seen I, I have no complaints in fact History of Violence and Eastern Promises fantastic films but why did you pick him first Rick uh, probably just as a as a fanboy I probably know more about his movies than like his entire run of uh, of features than other directors I mean there's other people that I'm a fan of but I I couldn't talk about their entire career like I can with him so and I just like to be a know-it-all so I want to I don't want to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about no but you, you I, I really like when people are like enthusiastic about stuff and passionate about stuff. Um, quite often, I don't even have to be into it. I'm just fascinated when when I find someone into whatever they're into it. I find it interesting. I'm curious. I want to know more why you're into it. And um, you know, since you mentioned him first, I'm I'm I really do, I'm looking forward to this conversation. But Dave, Dave, I I, I noticed when I talked to you, you also seem like a fan of Cronenberg and. What is it about his movie that you like? I, th- I think last time we talked, we talked about uh, Cassavetti, and we, about an hour and a half ago, we just had a wonderful two hours time with Bill Lustig. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what is it about Cron- Cronenberg that you like so much? 
Well, I think when we were talking to Steve last week, I brought up how the, one of the earliest memories I have of watching movies was actually The Fly, the Cronenberg <laughs> uh, version of The Fly from 1986. I definitely had seen movies prior to that, but... I how old were you when you watched that? I must have been four. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember coming home from preschool and my dad surprised me by putting a purchased VHS copy of The Fly right by where oh, wow. I walked in the front door. And I think that was a week following having just watched RoboCop. Wow. And so those two movies uh, made a big impression and it didn't hurt that they were both extremely violent films. Mm -hmm. And so I, I realized that I really like violence in movies, uh, especially if done well. <laughs> and, and, and so that definitely started off uh, me on the, the whole Cronenberg kick from a very young age. But then subsequently, especially as I got older and was wrestling with my own creative uh, leanings, I found that there was a lot of overlap with stuff that Cronenberg was addressing, especially with all the films he had done up to the late 90s. Wait, wait, uh, and, and Rick, I know you want to ask something, but <laughs> I'm no child psychologist, <laughs> and I know... Um, well, in a way you are. <laughs> you know, kids... Child molesters are not considered <laughs> as a uh, uh, child psychologist, but I, I don't... I. Uh, I, you did, your dad didn't seem, I mean, first of all, you remember as four-year-old, like, you watching that? I do, vividly. Uh, I remember the scariest part for me was the, and we'll talk, we'll go into detail more about each of the films, but I remember... Well, before you continue, um, do, can, can one of you guys do me a favor? Because I don't want to assume every listeners have seen that movie. Mm -hmm. It's a remake, right? From the right. 1950s. Yes. So how, how would you like, you know, within a minute of explaining, what is the movie about? It's about a scientist who comes up with a teleportation machine and um, what he, uh, he works as, he's on his own. Of course, he's a mad scientist kind of guy and he decides to go through it himself. And, uh, and when he was trying to do it, in when he goes in, he other portal have a fly in it, right? Well, no, the same portal. He didn't realize that he got in with a fly. And so ah. they both teleported together. And the uh, high-tech 1980s computer uh, merged their, um, their cellular structure so that he became like one creature. And, and you know, I, quite often when you have that movie from 1950s, it's usually reflection of the time. Or is that? Do you think it has something to do with it? Like, because somebody told me um, none of the living dead from the '60s has something to do with racism and civil rights movement or whatnot. I don't. I don't know if that's true, but um, I think people tend to put. They tend to uh, make. You know, in retrospect, it's easy to to overlap whatever was happening at the time and making it a. Uh, putting an interpretation that doesn't necessarily work. Although I, I do think that the end, uh, there are two things about Night of the Living Dead that definitely have a lot to do with civil rights. And that's of course, casting a black man as a hero, which was really unheard uh, of. Yeah. Un, in a horror movie, especially Dave, you know, that documentary recently about Stanley Kubrick is a room two, three, seven. Is that the, mm -hmm. so uh, I haven't finished the movie, but it was very interesting and amusing because how did I miss all that thing that people <laughs> claim? Because I just thought, I thought I thought it was a fucking scary movie. That was that was extent of it. So I, I don't want to. Maybe I'm just trying to see, trying to be clever. But um, going back to Fly, I mean, it, it was just it was just basically science fiction. It, that's that, nothing more, nothing less. 
Well, the, the, the plot is actually very much like the original and like a lot of those uh, remakes. He, he, you know, they didn't know about as much about DNA in the 50s, I guess, but uh, it's pretty much the same plot in the Vincent Price movie. But, um, you know, it's completely visually and technically different. So... I don't think I was scared, but I was really grossed out. And when I saw it in 86, I must have been 16 or 17 years old. So I can't imagine four-year-old child. What kind of father is that anyway? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to, you know, you seem like a fine young man. <laughs> I don't think you have a dead hookers in your trunk of your car. But it's just so strange to me when I hear this. Um, I don't know what it is about Asian culture that we, you know, we don't make excuse like, oh, never X, Y, and Z kill a bunch of people. We blame it on movies. I'm, I don't think most Asian people would do that. But um, uh, I, I don't think most. Well, I, I don't know what I'm. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's just so strange to hear that four-year-old. Would you do that to your own kid if you had a four-year-old? I think it depends. I mean, I think my parents knew that I could handle it. I feel. But like how do you know at age four? <laughs> Was your dad just really into movies and and? Oh yeah, and you just happened to be there, and he wanted to watch this movie. So, well, I mean, what compounds the conversation? Well, let me ask: oh, 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 Was he one of the butchers of Tiananmen Square? <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. Not, not as far as I know. Um, the uh, well, it's interesting because my dad definitely was the major factor early on in getting me into movies. In fact, uh, what I spoke to Yoshi about earlier uh, regarding how movies ended up being the uh, the end goal eventually was that I, I was very fixated on animation and being an illustrator and doing comics and cartoons, but then I just realized movies would be a lot simpler as far as just communicating shots and compositions uh, without having to draw everything out. Mm -hmm. uh, although now I'm actually starting to feel like drawing is going to be a lot more uh, straightforward <laughs> than filming mm -hmm. things. But that being said, uh, my dad was a big influence and he started showing me a bunch of films that I think really shaped what I was seeking because it wasn't it wasn't very long after I'd seen movies like Robocop and The Fly that I would eventually not too long after that I saw the full uh, four and a half hour version of Once Upon a Time in America <laughs> you know with the uh, how old were you five years old that, yeah that, by that time I was five or six so I could handle so I mean, you could I was, read I could read. saw that one <laughs> <laughs> I, I could actually Go to the library and read literature about the much-talked-about rape that occurs at, at hour three of that film. Uh, but uh, but it was good because I think my parents could trust me with that material. I feel like if anything they were hesitating about me watching was stuff to do with nudity more than violence, which is kind of weird. Although now I'm very lax about both, and I kind of err on the side that we need more sex in movies and violence. But So the fl fly you liked a lot. A whole lot, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that became the the big initial push and why I have an inherent bias for Cronenberg mm -hmm. and also Paul Verhoeven because RoboCop was the other big movie of my youth. Sure. Uh, it's just because I, I was so... Uh, I felt so intimately aware of their style from such a young age and so subsequently I could pick up on their, uh, their, their recurring themes and visuals. And, and I should add, uh, in lieu of just things that seem really demented, it was my mom who helped me rent the NC-17 VHS copy of Cronenberg's Crash wow. from 1996 when it finally made it onto video that holiday season. I think it was like <laughs> Christmas Eve, I went to the video store and I somehow convinced my mom 
to help me rent this because of course I wouldn't be old enough to rent the NC-17 film. I'm really getting confused. How many movies <laughs> name after Crash now? Well, there was uh, one pretty good one by Cronenberg and then there was one that we won't speak of that won an Academy Award. The, the Crash you're talking about, people who have a fetish about getting car accidents, is that the one? Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Oh, I wasn't aware that he did that one as well. Mm -hmm. um, I guess if you believe if you're into that movie, that makes Asian people very sexy, <laughs> sexy, sexy men. Um, or why we do it? Well, so how old were you when your mom got you this? I uh, was thirteen. Softcore pornography. Yeah, I know it's pretty much softcore <laughs> porn, uh, fetish porn too. Uh, -huh. uh yeah, thirteen. Thir yeah, thirteen. Wow. Yeah. Good for them. And my mom watched that tape to uh -huh. verify what I was actually. Uh, conning her into renting on my behalf uh -huh. and she was very disturbed and I don't think made it past <laughs> 30 She minutes. didn't get to the gay sex which comes later in the movie. I think yeah I think she stopped right before the whole James Dean section of the movie. <laughs> uh, okay so let me um, That's when it really starts getting going actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rick what's what's um, well name a couple of like ones that you like the most Cronenberg mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm curious which ones you like well, the brood is probably. One and of and I don't know anything about that. Could you explain to me and listeners what's that about and why you like it? Uh, that's it's just an amazing movie. Really, uh, I love it on every level. It's uh, Oliver Reed plays this uh, rogue um, psychiatrist who uh, has discovered some way of making people manifest their neuroses in through their physical outward body, and. Um, uh, it, it the plot of the movie comes in the middle of this um, really messy divorce between uh, Oliver Reed's patient who's in seclusion that he's keeping completely under wraps and her husband uh, who is uh, you know trying to solve the mystery of psychoplasmics which is uh, Oliver Reed's uh, you know quack uh, specialty he's uh, he assumes it's quackery but you know apparently it, it definitely has uh, some actual, um, I wouldn't say value, but it it it, it works in whatever way, and and the and how it works is is the horror, the body horror of the movie. But uh, it it's it's uh, wait, so there's a lot of gore in the movie. There, I, there, yeah, there's some there's some real violence, but mm -hmm. it's more a lot of the horror actually comes from just people um, manifesting this kind of diseased. Uh, I don't want to give away too many spoilers in case some of your viewers, readers, might want to watch the listeners movie. might mm -hmm. want to see it. But the, uh, yeah, there was a really one thing that really shocked me when I first saw it because I was a teenager, young teenager, and oh, I, so it's old. Yeah, it came out in seventy seven, seventy nine, seventy nine, maybe. Um, I was I had never seen a horror movie where there was a killing that took place in the broad daylight. And uh, in the movie, this um, the this old older woman gets uh, bludgeoned to death in her kitchen by these uh, little creatures, and uh, it was so shocking to me. I, I, I it just really blew my mind. I'd never seen a horror movie that did that, and uh, and and just everything about it. There's I I, I love the way. I love the way Cronenberg in a lot of, especially his early movies, he has this way of hyping up the drama of just 
you really feel this oppressive reality. Uh, you know, everything is just hyper important, and a lot of it has to do with like Howard Shore's uh, music. You know, just this bombastic kind of spooky, eerie. Uh, you know these dramatic scores that really it, it it's uh i don't know i just really love it I, I like that one in particular has got a, it's got a really great score and the the plot is seems very personal as well i've heard like cronenberg saying that i think it came um either right after a messy divorce he had and uh so he's uh, he or other people have <laughs> described it as his version of Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, really? <laughs> that's really funny. Well, yeah, but I don't know if that's his joke or someone else's. But uh, yeah, it, it it's uh, the drama is very real, which helps to give like it gives weight to this stuff that is totally off the wall. This these um, this unthinkably absurd new science that he's talking about uh seems to it's it actually seems to have validity because the plot is actually human stuff that anyone can relate to just families you know the cycle of uh abuse and families and uh you know people who love each other lying to each other and you know it's it's really it's just a perfect mix of exploitation and very serious movie making so so when you went did did you just went because you heard about it or you're just like just like well I, at that time I was watching every horror movie I could see so I, oh so you didn't I know just, a whole I, lot about it yeah I, I went in totally cold I saw it in a the theater by myself and and uh, I came out my with my head totally blown open Dave did you have you seen the movie yeah I, I think I've seen every Cronenberg film uh the Brood wow. is a title that I feel in recent conversation of the past few years, uh, people whose p opinions I really, really value and trust uh, regarding movies in general. The Brood has commonly come up as the in the top two or three Cronenberg titles, and I think it's the one it's the one title that people who are really astute about his work, I feel like The Brood and Videodrome have kind of floated to the top as being the current favorites. I was just thinking like how it, it kind of stands apart from his early, a lot of his early stuff because, uh, you know, he's known for these totally wild, crazy, uh, horrific, um, over-the-top concepts in his movies, especially the early ones, you know, the when he's doing horror movies. And that one stands apart in having this solid, dramatic story to it. Like, I mean, there's, there's definitely solid scripts and in his other movies too but it kind of prefigures the stuff he's been doing in the past 10 years where he's gone to strictly drama kind of the, where the thriller aspects of his movies are not uh not as upfront mm -hmm. as like these you know like uh what, what the uh, a dangerous method is like you know it's basically it's just people talking to each other really that's like the mm -hmm. only action in it mm -hmm. and um I, you know, I, I like that stuff too. So I, I think, uh, for people who only know um, him as one or the other, either the the, the Hollywood uh, movie maker that he is now, or the, you know, independent uh, exploitation dude, 
um, that the brood would be a good place to start because it's it's a kind of a mix of the two. Is that an easy? It's not an easy watch, is it? I think it's very. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm biased. It's just mm-hmm. totally entertaining to me. I, I, I could watch. I've watched it way too many times. I mean, Dave, you, it sounds like you've seen most of his movies. So, if you want to introduce to someone who who's not familiar with his movies, is that something that you would start with? Not I, because when we talk about John Cassavetti, he told me to watch. Uh, you, you thought Mini and Moskowitz, and you know, I I I, I follow what's going on. It, it just. It's just uncomfortable to watch at times. <laughs> it, I wouldn't say it's a hard watch, but it's uncomfortable at times. So, um, it's a, it's a brood something that you would recommend um, someone who's not familiar with these movies to start with that one or. Personally, I probably wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually remember. Not but what really... what the fuck would you know? You watched The Fly when you're four years old too. <laughs> I know. Fucking well, psychopath. <laughs> wouldn't that be funny if we find that Dave was like assassin in the middle of the night? Oh, he, none of this sissy stuff with his dad making watch, all that, you know, irreversible and crap like that. He's cleansing the city in oh, a yeah. big metal suit. I actually think because uh, because it was the first one I saw, I, I tend to recommend The Fly. Mm-hmm. I think there's something about it that... The Fly, for me, is still my favorite Cronenberg film because I think it... Is that right? I think it is, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I completely admit, too, it's it's based on an inherent bias having been the first film of his that I've seen. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm not going to lie to you. I enjoyed watching it. I, I'm really fascinated by, uh, in, in the case of Cronenberg and with a lot of uh, uh, directors with this sort of status, is I'm really fascinated by the titles that seem to be the, the perfect distillation of their themes and their their very uh, their signature, mm-hmm. but at the same time, something that's very genre specific and that had a lot of mass appeal. I mean, the mm-hmm. fly was a hit. He had a couple of really big hits, and mm-hmm. but and, and it's not just to judge the fact that it was a popular movie, but just how it was popular and how it it hit the zeitgeist. At the same time, it wasn't a watered down version of him. Right. Whereas, like you know, The Departed, uh, the Martin Scorsese uh, uh, cop movie from a few years ago, that was. Very popular, made a lot of money, got him an Oscar. But it, you know, I, I think most people will agree it's it's very light Scorsese. And I love that The Fly is actually still a very uh, central part of the Cronenberg uh, voice. In, in fact, it was they may he he actually worked on Broadway show version of that. And uh, I didn't yeah. I didn't go see it, but I heard it was very very good and it was very popular. Um, I, you know. I, I, how would you describe someone who is not familiar with movies? Like, what what is it? You know, oh, that's a Cronenberg movie. I mean, what what characteristic would describe? Hmm. I re- I realize there's like different phases. Like you were telling me before we started recording, Rick. Uh, what what is that word that you use? A body horror flick or um, yeah, medical yeah. horror flick? What you know? Yeah, he kind of. I I I wouldn't even I wouldn't consider Spider part of that. I mean that's sort of like a transition movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but existence was sort of. I, I think he was trying to maybe. That's kind of like uh, a return to the, the earlier stuff, but I didn't like it as much. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't. I don't know. It's. It's. Uh, how, what would you say, David? I mean, like. I my go-to answer is usually he's about fusion, because. Uh, I think a recurring theme, and, and it's definitely simplifying a lot of his uh, later work, but I think he really likes to 
deal with stories uh, dealing with characters or scenarios or both that deal with a hybrid of sorts. Uh, there's very literal examples of that, especially in his earlier, I guess the earlier half of his career, where you literally have things uh, mutating together or things that are half human or half bug. Uh, or in the case, of, I mean, as an example, Naked Lunch, the adaptation of the William Burroughs novel, mm-hmm. you literally have a typewriter that's also this kind of sexual insect. Things like that are very much in, in that, uh, in that uh, theme of hybrids. And then you think about history of violence, where you have Viggo Mortensen, who's half family man and half former killer. Yeah. Right. And then even something like, uh, gosh, like his most recent film, Cosmopolis, which I rewatched a few days ago in anticipation of this podcast, uh, a movie I didn't really like, but it made sense that he was ado- adopting, uh, or I'm sorry, adapting a, uh, a Don DeLillo novel that deals with a very, very wealthy billionaire uh, Wall Street type that's trying to get in touch with the common man. So then you have the hybrid of classes. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think Cronenberg, and, and I was even citing uh, to Rick earlier about how uh, I was doing some YouTube farting around. Mm-hmm. And there's a really interesting clip from a few years ago where there's this extended interview with the director, John Carpenter, who did Halloween, Escape from New York. I, I kind of vaguely overheard, but what did he say? Well, he was uh, asked about how it was like being part of this pantheon of directors from the 70s and 80s who are known for creating a very specific uh, movement of horror in North America. And how a lot of these guys, uh, some, of, some of whom would be like Wes Craven or, uh, gosh, what was the other name? Uh, George Romero. Mm-hmm. And, and so they would have these kind of famous Toby Hooper, Toby Hooper yeah. exactly these famous uh, meetings in Hollywood where the masters of horror get together and have dinner and they shoot the shit and uh, it, they add new people to the ensemble like an Eli Roth or an Adam Rifkin and I think strangely enough um, the guy who directed Sahara but he, he was involved somehow and Brad Anderson and newer guys so John Carpenter's anecdote was they invited David Cronenberg to attend one of these Masters of Horror dinners a few years ago, and he was the star of the party because <laughs> it was his first time at one of these events, and of course, since the 80s and 90s when they were in more frequent touch, he's since garnered more acclaim as far as Oscars and doing heady stuff after 2000 in the movie Spider. And John Carpenter said that he was very, very disappointed to find that David Cronenberg wouldn't make eye contact with him at all when he would try to start conversation and ask him things to catch wow. up. And he even said in his own very John Carpenter way, which is somewhat passive aggressive and kind of old school, very manly, saying that he's he takes himself way too seriously. <laughs> he said he's just, you know, he's just an intellectual now. He just takes himself too seriously. Mm-hmm. And I, I identify with that insofar that for me personally, from the, the moment I saw Spider, which came out in 2001, I think, 2002, from Spider on, I haven't really loved any of his films. I since have really warmed up to History of Violence. Yeah. That's a movie that I really, really uh, uh, actually still consider in his top five or six titles. Mm-hmm. But the other stuff, like... I, I have to say, that one really hit home with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really clean structure. Yeah. It's incredibly It's simple. like a fable. Yeah, yeah it's like yeah. a fable. Yeah. It's a really, and it has probably his most out-of-the-ordinary opening shots, which is this very long, like, three- or four-minute take. He, uh, I guess one little tidbit for anyone who's privy to the Cronenberg 
uh, filmography is that he actually uses title credit sequences. He has this completely separate thing because he has such a great composer, Howard Shore, who's also composed the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he's collaborated with Howard Shore ever since, uh, certainly with The Brood, I would mm -hmm. even say. He did um, uh, Scanners. Maybe The Brood was the first time. Could be. No, he did Scanners for sure. Which was first, Scanners or The Brood? The Brood was before Scanners. Yeah, so I, I think I saw The Brood must have been the first one I ever saw. And yeah, he, he did uh, all, all his early movies, I think, were Howard Shore. And it, yeah, and he did History of Violence as well. Because with such a good composer like that, you want to have the amazing, very ambient, very uh, sometimes melodic, sometimes just very brooding, uh, pun intended, yeah. themes play over these really conceptual opening sequences. But History of Violence is the only one that didn't really have that. Uh -huh. uh, do you remember the opening, Yoshi, of History of Violence? Oh, before I make a comment, it, it make, it, the whole time I'm listening to you, Dave, man, just check out the brain on this kid. I mean, <laughs> you know, obviously... It's spilling out his ears. Here's the thing. I don't even have to say, beginning of this podcast, say, hi, this is Yoshi, and this is Dave. Obviously, listen to the way I talk, <laughs> which is, you know, semi-retarded. And Dave, I mean, I was at... You I mean, your answer was... I mean, Rick, too. I mean, you guys are both on. I mean, I'm just watching two guys playing an NBA level basketball. I'm just a kid with a real retarded helmet on. I could barely, you know, dribble you're, the ball. You're like radio. You're yeah. Like radio. <laughs> well, you know what it is? You're, you're, you're about. But I mean, I, but, but I have to say that the way you explain the hybrid, I mean, couldn't get more clear. You drew this picture in my head, like wow. Especially the thing you're talking about, uh, history of violence with uh, family man and a mob pass, and um, well, well done. I mean, well done, Rick and uh, Dave. Uh, that, that was a really uh, nice explanation. I, I, it's very hard for me to make comments on any of these movies because I watch casual, like even videodrome i don't know how i ended up with that movie i watched the whole time i was watching like what the fuck is going on mm -hmm. same thing with the naked lunch naked lunch i had a, a better appreciation later on when once i read about william burrow but without yeah. having some knowledge like it's very confusing uh -huh. um but history of violence i i um on the previous podcast i um i grew up in an environment where a lot of people excluding my father but uh, other people use violence to resolve problems and I, I believe that was based on comic book which was yeah. later made in the movie but boy I, I don't know what it is about that movie it just it had a nerve with me and um, his relationship with his son because he's afraid teaching his son resorting to violence even though he's extremely violent I mean mm -hmm. this the, the 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 sequence in Philadelphia um, Sorry, I'm, I'm back. Uh, the cat, Rick's cat was uh, going a little <laughs> crazy. But um, rem remember, if, if you haven't seen the movie, I apologize. But there was a two thugs tra uh, traveling across someplace mm -hmm. in like Western Phil Pennsylvania or whatnot. And um, there's a two high school football players harassing uh, Vigo Mortensen's son. And um, do you remember seeing where those high school kids were driving and those two 
killer thugs were driving yeah and they kind of almost collide in the middle of it right and it's basically the bigger animal neanderthal stared yeah. down to other animals and like the those kids kind of drive away yeah. but it, it it really is like a primal thing with me it's almost like the scene from 2001 with those those apes are going crazy <laughs> and getting it but I know people tell me don't resort to violence, but I think I think I don't know. I'm, I'm really obsessed with violence. I don't necessarily have to go and beat people up, but mm -hmm. what, what 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 was your take on that movie? I, I I thought. Well, first of all, another thing that was interesting it was one of the I think it was the first film to have a sexual possession of sixty nine ever. I listened to commentary. <laughs> no, sorry, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, that, is that is true. I think it's one of the really yeah first time That's where insane. like Vigo's wife was angry with him and they start having like f they start fucking on the yeah. stairway right yeah. and uh, i was listening to commentary i think it was by cronenberg i think a director perhaps mm -hmm. but they said that um <laughs> I, I thought out of all the movies have been around you would think they would have done 69. Well, i'm sure they're excluding like you know showtime or stuff like that yeah but i mean the feature yeah. films yeah, like yeah, that yeah. and to to see such a graphic sexual thing in a violent film right. I, I i thought it was uh, uh it, it was interesting but i i also like it because the violence was real violent i mm -hmm. really love that i don't like movies where you have pg-13 and gi joe trivialized violence yeah i really um like when I first time saw Bonnie and Clyde, I, I just thought that's just beautiful, the violence, you know, yeah. because uh, when people resort to violence, people get hurt. People but, really need to see what really happened to people. But stuff like, you know, I I, I uh, understand historically it's great. And I, I, I find like Bonnie and Clyde and the Wild Bunch. Yeah. Things like that. I find them very entertaining. But I think they do fall down in that they don't show the result of violence really they like the bad guys fall down and then that's the all yeah. you think of them you know and i think uh, movies like a history of violence and um and really uh serious modern thrillers that's one thing that has come in into being that i think is very important is that showing violence you know showing the the fallout of violence mm -hmm. it, you, you kind of get that in the history of violence. He's struggling with it, and you see why he's struggling with it because it's not a good thing. You know, it's not like. And it wasn't gratuitous not, violence it, it, either. That it does solve his immediate problems, mm -hmm. but it gives him all kinds of other problems. Sure. You know, and and uh, emotional pain. So, uh, I, I, I like that movie a lot. I I I, I love I love it a lot, and that last scene in uh philadelphia the violence was just um the sequence of it yeah. even the sound of it when he twists the guy's head and just breaking the guy's neck um you watched that again and again i i really did i really watched it and um were you able to um achieve orgasm it's, uh, it's the third it's, one or <laughs> that kind of shit ha uh, I don't know why I got it. I, I God damn it, this cat. I'm ready to ready to stump on it like my stepmother. Could, <laughs> <laughs> it should be noted that there are a couple of moments that the listener cannot hear where uh, Yoshi has thrown the cat away from. Yeah, us. yeah, over Cats and over. Cat's really good at throwing my cat across the room. But well, you know the, the violence thing. So mm -hmm. I, I distinctly remember, and this is something that's always been a point of contention within myself because I. I like violence in movies when it's done well, regardless of the re repercussions being uh, depicted in a in a meaningful or accurate way. Mm -hmm. uh, I found it kind of problematic at times because *A History of Violence* was a very critically acclaimed film, even for Cronenberg. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember when it premiered at Cannes, it was notable because that year, which was 2004, uh, his film and another Canadian filmmaker named Adam Agoyan had a movie called Where the Truth Lies, I believe. Never heard of it. Yeah, oh, that one actually, fe- uh, that one got NC-17 because it features uh, Alison Lohman, who was in that movie Matchstick Men with the Nicolas Cage. She plays yes. a young girl playing, mm-hmm. hey, I'm your daughter. So she uh, she gets eaten out by another, um, uh, or uh, maybe she does the eating out, I forgot. But there's girl and girl uh, cunnilingus in yeah. that particular movie that earned it its NC-17 rating. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of an aside. Uh, <laughs> the thing is that both films by Canadian filmmakers at the Cannes Film Festival were both addressing stories that are about Americana. History Bonds was about suburbia, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And um, the other film I mentioned, Where the Truth Lies, was about Hollywood and about the mythos of you know the small town girl going to Hollywood to make it big. So Cronenberg would constantly say that he would be very dismayed when people refer to the violence in a history of violence as cool or well shot because he said that it's always supposed to be horrifying and that yes. if they ever thought it was cool, they missed the point. Right. And I felt dismayed because I thought the violence was really cool <laughs> and I got the point that it was horrifying. Yes. Right? And I think, uh, I, I always remember too, uh, Tarantino in an interview in The New Yorker in 2003 when he was promoting Kill Bill had some reporter come to his house and he was going off on all this stuff, like how he hated Godard and he was over him. And I remember film students. Good for were, him. <laughs> I, know, I know, he was actually saying a lot of stuff that I kind of agreed with. And uh, the cl- uh, kids in my, my uh, film school class were all like getting angry about this because he also said, oh, Kubrick's full of shit because, hey, there's no question that the first 30 minutes of A Clockwork Orange are fucking brilliant. But for him to say this is to show how violence is bad is really, really hypocritical because a part of why you show violence in movies in art is that there is definitely an elation that comes from it. The, the morality, of course, you know it's wrong and that's why it's fantasy. But I, I think there's a problem whenever a director gets too vocal about, uh, oh, well, I'm showing this because it, it shows the, the horribleness of the real world. And it, I don't know, it kind of deflates the fun that I do get out of it. Well, the, the, with Kubrick, you can kind of understand why he, did, why he might have been a little touchy about it because he had that whole thing in England when... Uh, the supposed copycat killing, uh, that or copycat rape was it, mm-hmm. um, that uh, got the movie banned, um, or not? Well, it was there was threatening to get a ban. I think he pulled it. I never heard of it. What happened? Uh, there was Clockwork Orange was made nineteen sixty eight, sixty nine, right? Yeah, and the, there was a, some case, and I think um, copycat crimes. Yeah, there were there were uh, some kids who claimed that they got the idea from watching the movie, and um, so. That would be for you know if he's giving interviews about a clockwork orange that'd be in front of his mind. So I, I can understand why he might say things that he didn't necessarily you know believe well, totally, artistically. Yeah. The the thing with uh, I think that this that's one of the big themes of a clockwork orange actually is not the horribleness of of violence, but about the that elation. You know, so it's about how. I mean, Malcolm McDowell is like so completely charismatic, and you know, you're so every, charming. Yeah, I mean, everyone who watches that movie is on his side, even though he's doing these horrible, horrible things. So it's not, it's not about, uh, it's not some statement about um, the violence. It's more about people's reaction to the violence and and the hypocrisy of you know people who use it for what their their other ends, and uh, you know. Try and stay on the, uh, 
you know, wear the good guy badge about it, you know, and and, and pretend that uh, that that it's not part of the whole system. May, may I make two quick comments? One, I'm, I'm, I have mentioned this before in other podcasts and and mine as well. Due to my father's death, I went back to Japan and saw to my stepmother. A point of like she probably would have died if I beat her another minute or so, or half a minute. And to this day, um, do I feel bad about it? No, I, I, I'm, I'm glad I did what I did. Um, I, I guess when I talk to some of my friends, they're puzzled why I don't feel bad about it. I don't know. Maybe I did, but I don't remember. But um, there was some satisfaction knowing what I did to her. Um, but two, this is the stuff that I always want to know from artists, and maybe you guys could do a better job explaining to me. Like, I remember when the Wall Street was released, uh, Oliver Stone's movie, his point of, point of the whole movie was these guys are illegally ripping people off uh, through uh, stock market, and mm -hmm. what they're doing is wrong. But unfortunately, a lot of young people saw that movie, want to be stockbroker and be just like Gordon Gekko. <laughs> and I, I don't think that's Oliver Stone's intention. Mm -hmm. Just like Breaking Bad, the great American television show, uh, Vince Gian, I don't know if, if he being ironic, but he was horrified or pretended to be horrified that the most of the people were on side of Walter White, who is throughout season one through the very end, mm -hmm. um, turned really, really horrible. Mm -hmm. And um, um, a moral story is that even even if intention was good, if you're doing evil, you're doing evil. Uh, on side note, this is maybe something that Dave could um, chime in. The Chinese audience, when they watch the Breaking Back show, complete opposite reaction. They think mm -hmm. his wife is a fucking bitch for whining. He's doing the best he's trying to take care of the whole family. He's she's being a horrible wife, but not being obedient to a crystal meth mm -hmm. drug overlord. So my, my point is like, you know, Leo Tolstoy talked about uh, that book before he passed away. What is art? He later wants to Anna Karina and War and Peace is not art. So uh, you know what I'm going, trying to go like, I don't know if any artist could create an art where they could send that those messages that they were trying to send. Like Oliver Stone, I mean, if that was his intention, he fell miserably. I don't, I don't know. I I I'm not really a big fan of messages in art. Anyway, I think mm. that um, it's funny because all the whether all the things that uh, we're talking about have that um, to a certain extent. I mean, even in like you know a history of violence, the although I think the the setup is fucked fucking amazing it's just you know really um you know the violence is is treated very seriously at the end it's almost like you know he's like uh, a warner brothers cartoon i mean he's killing with such ease and mm -hmm. so you know just dispatching the bad guys it, it, which which to me is what makes it a fable but i think you're also invested in the character by that point sure it doesn't matter if they did that from the very beginning, it would be, I, I wouldn't consider it a serious movie. But it's funny because going back to having spoken about The Brood earlier, mm. I do believe it was Cronenberg in interviews kind of half jokingly, or rather with a, a bit of a laugh and a bit of a smile when he refers to The Brood as his Kramer versus Kramer. I think he was the one who cited the fact that he had been going through. <laughs> Sorry, that just, makes me laugh every time you say <laughs> yeah. it. Well, because it, it's funny because if you think about it, there's a lot of aggression towards. The By the way, for those of you who are young, Kramer versus Kramer was uh, basically Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep about 
they're going through a divorce and they're yeah. fighting over their son. So it's a divorce show. So exactly, fine. yeah, it's very good context. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because in the brood, uh, you can definitely, if you're looking for it, and I don't think it's too hard to find, there's a genuine anger towards the maternal figure of, in the film, mm-hmm. and, a, and a constant suspicion of her intentions, which ultimately becomes this pretty fantastical thing at the end, and, and somewhat uh, icky and sticky and gooey uh-huh. and great. <laughs> but it's funny because he's been very open about that where there's kind of a bliss that I see in that context where there's something more pure about the idea that there was something innate in his anger and where he was in his life that didn't feel so... Uh, and I love history of violence, but uh-huh. I think the brood has strength over history of violence because there's inherently that anger in the DNA of the making of the film, whereas I think there's, going back to the Carpenter's point perhaps, is that there's a real danger when a very, very a talented filmmaker like Cronenberg begins to intellectualize perhaps a bit too deeply in what his intents mm-hmm. are, because as much bliss as there is in the violence and, and the set pieces and the history of violence, I, I still feel like there's more of a pronounced, not a message necessarily, but he definitely has more intent that is more conscious than some of the unconscious, like destroy the mom figure in the brood. <laughs> Because my, my ex-wife's a fucking bitch, that kind of... I think it's more that that there's more id in the uh, exploitation movies because he's, uh, he, he well, he was younger, so he had, like, you know, he had more, he was more full of cum. And he was just, <laughs> you know, he, he... I love this uh, <laughs> cinema lingo that you use, Rick. That's really true, though. But, you know, but yeah, it, 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 there's, there's, there's more violence, there's more ick, there's more everything, you know, it's, they're just more over the top. And... Now I think my impression of his later movies is I still like them and they're very entertaining and I think he's still one of my favorite directors, but he's taking sort of that, uh, he's exploiting different things. He's not exploiting, you know, what was uh, transgressive back then, you know, like horror and, and uh, you know, people getting torn apart and having sprouting tumors outside their body and stuff like that uh which ironically is is not is is mainstream now i mean you could you could put that in a, a regular hollywood movie now and it's, it's not going to be is it's it's not going to be relegated to uh to you know be it's not a b picture necessarily but he's, he's sort of taking like uh hollywood themes and giving them the cronenberg touch you know he's got drama he's doing something mm-hmm. like Dangerous Method, which is all drama. Um, he's, uh, you know, I, I just think it's uh, it's interesting. He's he's taking a style that he's he's perfected, and um, I don't think his early stuff is any less structured. It's just the the themes are different. They're they're more um, they're they're also uh, wider. I think he's kind of he's kind of narrowed his focus in his later movies like you could say you can definitely point out specifically the the the, the themes of the stories that he's doing in his movies could be pro- now could probably be summed up you know in a couple sentences where in the old days you, you really have to give a lot of you know it, it's a whole new world of, of what he's creating mm-hmm. but you know I just wanted to mention you were talking about Howard Shore and, and, and his soundtracks I, yeah. I love the, that music so much and I, I uh, I'm not really a soundtrack guy and I went and I, I listened to a couple of 
of uh, things that weren't Cronenberg, and I was surprised to find that Howard Shore can make a bad score. <laughs> he actually does, well, he, or stuff that I, I just didn't like at all. He's, he's done some stuff that's incredibly sappy. So it, it's, yeah. it strikes me as uh, interesting that maybe it, it was, so he, you know, he's reacting to the movie that he's doing the work for. You know, it, it, it's just a really great collaboration. How, how does that work? I mean, this is a technical question. It's like, the, does the guy, composer, actually watch the movie and figure out the music that fits that scene? Or does he make the music first after reading the script? Do Depen you, do you... Depends on the director. Right? I, I see. think it really, yeah, it really mm -hmm. depends. I mean, the probably the most famous director-composer collaboration uh, in history uh, or recent history and even to this day is John Williams and Steven Spielberg. And I know from all the DVD documentaries that I've watched way too many of, that after, uh, between the time that everyone's already read the script and before Spielberg shoots, John Williams will, just on his piano, noodle a theme that is more or less the theme of the film that will play at the end credits. Mm -hmm. And then that'll kind of give Spielberg a bit of a idea of where he's going with it. And then come time when the first rough cut is uh, delivered, then John Williams will take that score and expand it over the entire film. Wow. That, that's become, become kind of a template just because they're such a notable duo. That, uh, that's how I've heard like big big productions doing it most most of the time now, but I, I know there's a lot of ex exceptions to the rule. Some people don't even uh, score a movie until it's completely in the can, I mean completely uh, edited, you know, which I can't imagine how you could do that. Yeah. How you could edit a movie without knowing what the music's going to be. Huh. Yeah. Oh, I know. I find that to be so confusing. <laughs> like for me, I actually feel like it'd be really cool if you trust the composer to, to noodle around and come up with two or, at least two or three themes that you can try to edit to and then kind of tweak it later on. Yeah. I can't imagine cutting anything without the music there. Yeah. Wow. I, some sort of directors have like, uh, they'll, they'll take some classical piece or, or some other piece that fits with how they're doing it just so that um, their their actors can get into the rhythm and the and the you know the um, when they're shooting principal photography so that everyone's sort of in the, the same mood but then they'll scrap that and use a use someone else's music I see um, unfortunately I don't I don't know a bunch about his other movies but I wanted to a couple of them to actually seeing so uh, <laughs> I'm cheating. Eastern Promises. Did did you guys like that movie? What did you what, what did you think? Um, how does it rank with uh, in his work? I like it a lot. The the what kind of annoyed me, I think, the most because I'm just just to pick it apart. I'm not. I, I think it's a very solid movie. I, I really like it a lot, and I I, I think Viggo Mortensen's just amazing actor, but. Uh, I feel bad for him for that year because he was competing with There Will Be Blood and uh, what's his name won an Oscar for it yeah. and you know I, I I gotta say when you see a, a grown ass naked man fighting a two Chichen guys <laughs> with those knives that you you're supposed to uh, for carpentry mm -hmm. so I, I, my understanding is that they carry those because if you, even if they get pulled over by a cop, they could say they're carpent in the carpenter business mm. and they won't get in trouble. But oh, so you, next time you go on an air, airplane flight, you should. Oh yeah. But but it's something about seeing two Chichen guys walking in. You're naked, and your balls literally, you know, going swinging all, in the breeze all over the place. <laughs> and you, I mean, you couldn't get more primal than that. You're yeah. fighting for your life, and. 
I I, lo I love that violent sequence as well, and I like the fact it's just a hor just horrifying ending. But that they should show it like that to to. Um, I've been in a situation when I stuff like that happened to me when I was a kid and when I was as an adult doing that to somebody, and no matter how satisfying when it, when you when when I do it, mm -hmm. there's I don't, I don't know I don't, I don't think of it but this awful emotional backlash you know mm -hmm. just actually hearing someone's bone cracking when you're stomping on them things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Well, there's there's. The, I think the, I don't know, the, I don't, the voiceover from the 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 girl, you know, whose diary that is found. Yeah, uh, yeah. That kind of bugged me. I didn't like, you know. It, uh, what is it about that bugs you? I don't know. I I can't I can't really put my finger on it. It's just it just seemed kind of cheap, you know. Like it, it's sort of cheap, like Anne Frank. So, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I didn't get it. <laughs> because it, I'm sure there's a diary, and I'm sure there's been like people reading over her diary. I I guess you know the. I don't know. It was something about the the whole scenario. It, mm -hmm. It's it's when it's a voiceover that from somebody that you never meet. Yes. Uh, it's you know in this heavy uh, Russian accent, which mm -hmm. seemed a little cartoony to me, and she's just so pathetic. You know, it just, it, just, it was sort of like you know you it, it seemed like a, a a kind of a cheap way of setting up the bad guys. I mean, they're obviously evil men it seemed like it'd be better to i don't know it just seemed like it was already stacking the deck at the beginning when you didn't need to you could just without without that stuff mm -hmm. you wouldn't even have had to had to have have know what's in the diary to know what's in the diary you could have just you know done it without without that i think that was the only thing that really bugged me but that that that, that was just a small portion of stuff that you yeah, didn't like yeah, yeah. um I, I only only other comments I could make a movie. I, I really enjoyed that a lot. Um, but there was a there was a story about Vigo was eating lunch or dinner uh, after they were done for the day, and um, he didn't take those tattoo off of him. So he, as he's eating, evidently <laughs> there was like a bunch of Russian people sitting oh. next. Oh, they were already. <laughs> Soon as he sat down, they what they saw that oh. they pretty much got up and paid their bill and walked out of there, yeah. because um, it's very Russian tattoos very similar in to Japanese in that you have certain tattoos corresponding to where you stand in that organization mm -hmm. and what you have done. Yeah, yeah, whether you murder somebody, you got uh, you went to jail for drugs. Yeah, and, your, your and, whole it, it really is your a, whole criminal life is right there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really a resume, really. Yeah, yeah. and so if you're a Russian person, <laughs> when you see a guy sitting next to you with those tattoos, yeah, they they were they were uh, uh, supposedly scared, but um, I, I I just thought he was fantastic, and I don't have I don't know how to use the language the way you guys do it, but I just I, I really enjoy watching that movie. Mm -hmm. I just feel bad that it just happened that he was competing against uh, Daniel Day Lewis and. And there will be blood. That was another fantastic film that year, you yeah. know. And uh, well, how how did you feel about the movie altogether? Did you like it? Eastern Promises, I did not like. Mm -hmm. It's one of those really frustrating examples of a movie that I feel like I totally get and I totally love what it sets out to do. I just didn't like how it did it. Mm -hmm. I see. Because it's funny how you mentioned the tattoo thing because that that's a big. I feel like everything again. This is a very uh, hindsight interpretive where. Everything that I've read from interviews with Cronenberg and it seems like the intent of the film 
is largely what I would even relate to. There's a movie that we even brought up with Bill Lustig, or I think he brought up the movie uh, Cruising, the uh, William Friedkin film with Al Pacino mm-hmm. as an undercover cop in the S&M gay underworld, as it were. Uh, in a similar fashion, I feel like how that movie was, at least in my interpretation, the, the movie Cruising, was a roundabout way of getting to the heart of, is Al Pacino's character trying to come out of the closet? Mm-hmm. I feel that there's an aspect of Eastern Promises that functions in that way, so that in a way, in, in a sense, he's using both the literal aspect of that character hiding behind those tattoos. In the same sense, this guy hiding behind masculinity to, or a perceived masculinity to hide some degree of his pansexuality. Because there, there's of course the notable bathhouse fight scene, which mm-hmm. is really one of the best things he's ever shot. And really, is, I mean, I remember when that movie was still out, Focus, uh, I think it was Focus Features, the newspaper ads would even say, come see the fight scene that everyone's talking about. <laughs> I mean, it didn't really do that well in the box office, as far as I remember, but they were doing whatever they could to lure people in, and that scene was so iconic, even uh, when it was still out in theaters, that they... It really it, grabs you. Yeah, it, it, stand, it almost stands out too much. It's like, it, it's such a great scene, yeah. such a great piece of action, mm-hmm. that... I felt when I first watched it, having known that that was coming, it was like it was like the big fuck scene in a porn film. You just like want to get through all this exposition so you can get to that bathhouse. Right. And but uh, there's that scene, and I think slightly before that, there's a sequence where Vincent Cassell's character yeah. is having sex, and he wants Vigo to watch. Right, because he is gay in the movie. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and I feel like everything about the movie that what it sets out to do conceptually can be kind of summed up in the bathhouse scene and also the 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 voyeurism scene mm-hmm. everything else kind of feels a little by the numbers Al- although I, I also still get that there's this recurring thing about him the, the duality of his identity and him hiding behind i, I actually things. love that i love that's another one that that uh you know when you find out that he's doing this undercover work is like uh spoiler um <laughs> that uh <laughs> That's it's another been six years. I think we're okay. That's another one where, uh, you know, Cronenberg like kind of he buries the lead in the in this great way. You know, he, he takes like uh, something that 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 is just one. It's dealt with in one little scene where he's talking to the cop, you know, and he's saying, oh, yeah. "I'm getting real close," you know, but kind of thing. And uh, I, I love that because that, that's another one like um, like The Brood, where you're, you're taking this. Uh, this really amazing uh, story about families and sticking it in the middle of this, you know, explosive, uh, you know, schlock fest, which is just incredibly violent and insane. You know, people remember the bathhouse scene, but they don't, they don't remember this thing that changes his entire character. It's like, you know, he's not just, He's not just this gangster with a heart of gold. He's like, you know, completely uh, divided against, you know, divided between two societies that could never reconcile. Now, going back, um, you and I recently went to see Jackie Chan's new movie. And Jackie was actually there. And the last five minutes where... It was awful. It was a horrible movie. Wait, is this about the 12 Zodiacs? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I actually saw it on YouTube. And oh. Someone uploaded it. <laughs> so I, 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 we went to movie premiere. I love Jackie Chan. Um, but um, 
in the last five seven minutes of the movie was incredible it shows like it would show clips of his various film amazing stunts it's he not, was, yes it's not actually the movie it's the credit sequence where it shows like yeah, yeah credit his, sequence his, uh, you know past glories and he's doing really? amazing yeah yeah for this 12 zodiacs yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, wow. it's, it's it's pretty amazing and but the movie i i didn't i didn't enjoy it at all and I know there's there's a lot of people who are a fan of martial art, kung fu, and things like that. Um, and believe me, Eastern Promises, those fighting sequence in the mm -hmm. bath, and uh, History of Violence, it's the same thing. It's like I I like it, but I'm horrified at the same time. <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's like alcohol; it makes me feel good, but but it also makes me feel bad. You know, and and um, I have a lot of mixed feeling, but but at least those Cronenberg violence, mm -hmm. at least. It's it's just terrible, and it is, you know, you know. I'm trying to Jackie's movie trivialized violence. It's like it's almost cute and fun. Yeah, it yeah. took only one punch to knock off this young kid, uh, and it just it's just a little goofy to me, you know. Uh, and maybe I should accept it as for what it is, which is like a fun family pro family. Even film, if but, you like that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. it's so so bad compared to you know, an Indiana Jones movie or any mm -hmm. of these other things that it's ripping off. It just it, it's. I, I couldn't find. I can't find anything good to say about that movie. Really, it gave me. It made me feel sorry for Jackie Chan, who's a multi-billionaire. And I like. I like. <laughs> I, I like Jackie. I really do. And and he he was very clever to did what he did, which is yeah. Bruce Lee was such a huge icon. He had to distinguish himself by being humorous. Mm -hmm. So I I understand why he did it. And in, in, in he is in his early days, he was you know. But I think it's just that that character he plays is really worn out it's welcome with me i mean i i, I love his early movies i, I really do yeah um great. but yeah. when he when he but when he say sorry dave when he say he spent six years i've been like how could you spend <laughs> six years to make that movie i don't understand like how yeah is, is the chinese typewriter that big i mean like why don't <laughs> it was just like i was just like you know of course he's in the room whatnot but i just thought I want Jackie to do what he wanted to do, which is to act. Yeah. Then less kicking and less punching. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you have to speak Chinese to do it, do that. But if you really want to act like the way he said he wanted to, then he need to stop doing this because it was very insulting. You know, it, yeah. I was, I was, yeah. I mean, I, I went to see the movie free, and I know he's sincere and stuff, but um, he should get same criticism. I used to criticize Jeremy Lin in NBA. Yes, he's Asian, one of the first one to do it. Right. But. He's not comparable to the other great. I don't know. I don't know why I'm completely bitching about Jackie, but I want him. To, I want him to do great work, and I just want him not to do this kung fu stuff. It's it's been done to death, and I want him to do something that different from that. You know, because he claims he that's what he want to do. Yeah. Then stop kicking. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it looked like his career was going to. You know, it's funny. I just imagine someone fast forwarding a little bit of this podcast and thinking. <laughs> Wait, did David Cronenberg direct the Jackie Chan? <laughs> no, no, sorry. <laughs> David Cronenberg's uh, 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 Chinese Zodiac. <laughs> well, did you see uh, Shinjuku incident? I actually like it, and the uh, guy I, I insulted, and he is a very uh, wonderful person, Daniel Wolves in it. I, I, mm -hmm. I enjoy that one a lot. The guy that you said to his face, you didn't know, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, sorry, Daniel. <laughs> but um, I actually think, you know, oh man, I know this is a David Cronenberg podcast, but the Jackie Chan thing is, is so, 
intensely interesting because <laughs> like I, I'm I'm obsessed with Jackie Chan. My dad actually looks a little like Jackie Chan. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I think that's why like I have this. Does his reaction. bank account look like Jackie Chan's? <laughs> uh, a lot of zeros. <laughs> no, uh, actually, next one we could talk about because I I do like him. But we it should was, talk about. We should have a whole thing about Jackie. Chan. But I'm 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 just uh, I uh, I apologize. I mean, if as though David Cronenberg is going to listen to this shit, you know. <laughs> but no, but I I'm, I'm I was just frustrated when when I was just watching like you got to be kidding me. It was just like it it was one of those like. Uh, Indiana Jones slash Pirates of Caribbean, right? But they just took all the. It's like it was like the El Camino of the movies. It just <laughs> took all the wrong parts. Yeah, yeah. And, they, uh, they took all the worst parts of those two movies and and stuck them together, and then um, made it make no sense whatsoever, and throw a bunch of uh, a bunch of people speaking english in a million different accents it was <laughs> yeah yeah completely incomprehensibly really fast very fast paced frenetically paced but but used using that to cover up any idea of what the fuck the movie is about you know just it it seemed like he had a just every i don't want to yeah, yeah, yeah i don't, I don't want to <laughs> No, but we'll go back to Cronenberg. But one last <laughs> the Shinjuku incident, I I actually enjoyed that movie. Yeah. Even though he was still fighting, the part that I a particularly movie was I don't remember why it happened, but Daniel Wu's character and Jackie Chan they got these two white hookers, and they're fucking, mm-hmm. and Jackie just kind of sitting there like almost like something I don't remember. It was something was bothering him and his friend or family or something, but he had like, this girl on top of him. But but the way he did it, I I thought that's acting right there. You uh-huh. know, you could really you could really feel what he was feeling. You know, yeah. like what guy doesn't want to fuck a, a prostitute, whatever. But yeah, you could tell by like his mind was elsewhere. And I thought that's the kind of stuff I would like to see Jackie do more. Yeah. Um, there's no question. He, he's done everything possible in martial art. He has nothing to, more to prove. He, and, and, he's all, and he's got the family audience wrapped up anyway. He, like he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't have to pander the, to those people. He's beloved all over the world. He's yeah, like, yeah. Like, there's no reason for him to make a He could get movie. a baseball bat and beat a baby seal to death <laughs> and they yeah. they would still love the guy, you yeah. know? And he doesn't uh, need to make this G-rated crap that that has no, you know, you know, let uh, let younger idiotic people do that, you know. You can make you can make good movies. And one more comment I want to hear what they think about then we'll go back Cronenberg, but it's it's almost like we have some, you know, some porno guys performing beyond certain age. Yeah. yeah. And girls and this is the part where girls are acting really well. Like they 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 act like they're interested in a guy who is forty five plus on old. Right, right. And some girls are, but not every one of the girls in this particular person's movie. Yeah. So it's it's just a bit of a self awareness. Like he, I don't know how old Jackie Chan is, but it just it's getting old at his age trying to fight. And we have to try to believe that he could still beat those people up. Yeah. I, I I really want Jackie to act. I I I know he can't do it, but he need to stop, stop doing it. You know, yeah. it's just not believable. Yeah. And I was I was a little sad when we were driving out of there. Mm. Um, but David Cronenberg should make a kung fu movie. That'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, so 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 um, one quick note, and then we have like another twenty minutes for Cronenberg. But what were you saying about Jackie that? Uh, um, well, I do. I've always felt that, uh, always uh, meaning that in the last ten years, <laughs> I felt that 
after the, I think after the second rush hour, I think that's pretty much when his action career should have really been put away. Mm-hmm. And then he could have really done what I think he did very successfully in, to some extent in Shinjuku Incident, and also notably in the Karate Kid remake, which the movie has tons of problems. But but, but I thought he was great in yeah. it. I didn't see it. I, I think he was great. And I am very protective of this Karate Kid series. I, re- I really, really love those. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know people get really, uh, but I, I really love. I really love the first one. Uh, and uh, I, I enjoy watching two, three, and one, even one with uh, what's her name uh, as a, yeah. It, it, it was it was it was great uh, with Walter Goggins as a, one of the bad characters. In the really? Point. Yeah, yeah. He was great. I <laughs> uh, love him in a Shield. But um, and I I thought. I just thought, you know, I, I didn't really care about um, Will Smith's son. I mean, he was very good in it, but I just thought Jackie was fantastic in that movie. I really, great. he was really great. Good, I would have liked to see more of that sort of things, you know. Um, the, Walton Goggins is in a really great short movie called The Accountant that you should check out. It's like, a, I think it's like 20 minutes long, 25 minutes. He literally plays accountant? He, he uh, no, he, he plays this like kind of redneck, Dude, but uh, it's really good. I'll, I'll show it to you later. Dave, have you seen The Shield? I know we were jumping into the TV section, but oh, The Shield. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, I actually started watching, or I, I revisited the a uh, couple of the episodes after Breaking Bad ended, just to just to uh, jog up the memory of that show. I, I I absolutely love that series, and especially the last season. My God, last two, three episodes of it, holy Christ, it really grabs you emotionally. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Soren Kierkegaard, Fear and Trembling. Boy, you, God, it really ripped your heart out, man. It's uh, I, I really, really love that series. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I was, I would, once again, going back to Jackie, <laughs> I would like to see him do serious stuff. It's it just... Um, he needs a Michael Chiklis role. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean... Well, that's what I, I think... Yoshi Incident was, like, was, was going for... You know, that's when, when Yoshi took me to that premiere yeah. of uh, that shitty movie, and... And I and, and I was I had seen Shinjuku. I didn't take you on purpose. I didn't know it was going to be shitty. No, 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 no. no, no, I, no. I, th- thanks, but <laughs> but I think both of us were thinking, oh, it's a new Jackie Chan. He's he's going off in an interesting direction. Let's check it out, you know. And uh, then we were slapped in the face by this <laughs> sub '80s just fucking piece of shit. I, I don't. I don't want to go as a piece of shit, but I. I know. I. I, I could tell watching it that whole uh, Buster Keaton's Ch- Charlie Chaplin slapsticks kind yeah. of thing had a huge influence on him. Yeah. Um. But I. I. I, I think. It's like almost like athlete. You know, sometimes athletes been so good at what they're doing for so long. It's very hard for them to quit because they are no longer able to do the things they were able to do before. Right. And I just feel like maybe acting you could cheat because it, it stunned people pretend like they're getting hurt or whatnot. Yeah. But I, I, I thought um, I, I really want people to give him a chance to do uh, serious stuff. And I, I think he can. I really do. Yeah. It's just sometimes people are afraid to try it. They're, they're not, maybe he's not ready to get out of the comfort zone or something. You yeah. Know? It's got to be. I. It's really hard to try and get into this the head of someone like that who 
has so much acclaim and so much money, he must be really insulated in, in some ways. And then on the other hand, I'm, I'm sure if he even steps outside for a second, he's mobbed by adoring people. You know, it's it's just a it's got to be a strange position to be in. Like, how do you make decisions about your art when you've got that to deal with? I, I, I almost feel like the whole time when they end, like, oh, God, I wish I had a courage to boo him. <laughs> no, no. But boo. that's the thing. He's, he's, he's like so charismatic. You wouldn't, well, you wouldn't want to hurt his feelings, you know? No, like no, I, I'm not. I, intent is not to hurt his feelings. Yeah. Intent is to give him a message because maybe he surrounds himself with people right. saying how terrific it is. Yeah, yeah. It's not, I mean, it's terrific in an in a accountant way. It's like right. the balance sheet, like it's exactly. making money. If you're. It, if that's your primary concern, then yes, I can argue with that. But it, you would never have the courage to boo him in a in a room full of his fans. You'd be you'd yeah, be especially with a guy with a Japanese name. <laughs> <laughs> you think, you have Shinjuku incident too in LA? No, you know what I'm saying, Dave. I'm, I I say this with out of love and respect. I really respect the guy. And um, um, what what was the thing that he did with Jet Li? That together we're back in time with this white kid, you know that movie. Oh right, uh, uh, Forbidden Kingdom. Or Something like that. Yeah. I, I'm, it didn't bother me. It was just really bland, though. Yeah, it just gently's always playing the intimidating guy that never smiles, mm-hmm. and 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 Jackie's the smiling, charismatic, the guy everybody loves. You know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't even know why we went from Cronenberg right. to Jackie Chan. <laughs> but go ahead. I'm gonna be very interested to see how you label this episode. Yeah, <laughs> Jackie Cronenberg. The here's the thing. I, I do have a way to connect this to Cronenberg, and, and it's somewhat relevant. I, I'm going to call it Cronenberg incident. <laughs> that works. Yeah. Um, well, the the Jackie Chan issue I, I've been thinking about in relation to <laughs> Cronenberg to some yeah. extent. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, you know, even like a guy like Stallone or, or Schwarzenegger. I mean, like it's funny to think that we're talking right now in October, the end of October 2013. And this is when there's currently a movie out called Escape Plan with both Stallone and Schwarzenegger, yeah. and no one could give two shits about it. Right. You know, it's not doing well. No one wants to see it, and it's not very good from what I hear. And and you know, you wonder like, why do these guys keep doing what they do? And I still feel like even if they have a lot of bombs or if something's not successful critically, you know, the yes man uh, dilemma is a very real thing. And, mm. and I apply this to Cronenberg through speculation because. Uh, recently I watched the Cosmopolis DVD and to my shock I had no idea that the behind the scenes featurette was even 30 to 40 minutes longer than the feature film it's a two hour behind the scenes documentary full feature about the making of Cosmopolis every I bet it's better than the movie it was more watchable I thought um, this kind of reminds me Belladonna's movie, the behind the scenes oh, more, God. the behind the scenes much more interesting than actual fucking. And this is a supposed to be porno movie. I apologize to two people who get the porn reference, but I think the two people are in this room. Right? And I, I, I and I, I do I, I do love Belladonna's movies, but here's a problem: if your behind the scenes more interesting than actual fucking is a porno, it's a problem. But anyway, go ahead, uh, Dave. Well, uh, I bring this up because notably, for me at least, uh, uh, The Fly, when the special edition of The Fly came out a couple of years back, it was, uh, you know, DVD nerds went, went crazy because there was an extremely long, behind, very comprehensive behind-the-scenes uh, docu- documentary, uh, like in five parts, and really long, like two and a half hours. And what's interesting is if you look at... Uh, 
Are you farting? No, no, no. I'm just checking the timing. We got 17 minutes on that one. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I thought Yoshi was farting because he was squatting. Um, so, you know, watching the, remembering the footage from the fly circa 85, 86 when they were shooting that versus the stuff that was, that was shot in 2010 or 11 for Cosmopolis. The thing that I want to extrapolate and, and speculate about is you could really sense the, uh, uh, the respect that people have for Cronenberg on the set of Cosmopolis because the guy's a legend. You know, he's mm -hmm. had a career that's now spanned over 30 years. And as much as I've been critical even in, the, in this conversation about his recent work, if I ever ended up on one of his sets, I'm not going to start telling Cronenberg what to do, even if I had different, uh, different opinions. And I think that's just because there's sort of the aura that comes with being a legendary, mm -hmm. uh, a man of that kind of status uh, within his, his artistry. But then I remember the footage from the making of Videodrome, or specifically The Fly, with, which had very, very comprehensive behind-the-scenes supplement material. And you didn't get that same feeling. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was respected and he was a name, but you really felt more like people were just kind of working towards the film, whereas I felt I, the vibe I got top to bottom from the Cosmopolis documentaries, everyone was serving David yeah. before the text. Right. And I think it's a real problem. Wait, is it that obvious to you? Uh, right? I, I, I didn't see that featurette, so I don't know, but uh, I, I think that definitely connects to the Jackie Chan thing because um, even though he was already a star in his heyday, he was, you know, not to belabor the Jackie Chan thing, but <laughs> it, it was, you know, he's, he was making movies as a, uh, you know, it's a group effort. It's a, making a movie is a group effort. And um, you're, the group is either serving the, the story, serving the movie, or they're serving um, their careers. And I could definitely see Cosmopolis being the latter. And just, I, and, and it's funny that you were you're saying, like, you, you would never, like, uh, tell him to his face, you know, that, uh, oh, you should be doing this or that. I would never, I don't think I would do that with any of my heroes because they've already earned the right to do whatever the fuck they want like yeah. with their, the, the movies they've made. And him in particular, I think, is... One, one thing I love about Cronenberg is that he he has kept a fresh perspective. You know, he's still he's still doing things, even though I think uh, Cosmopolis was a big failure. He's he's he instead of he didn't just continue making uh, the movies he was making. He, you know, he you could I, I got the feeling uh, I know a lot of people like existence, but I, I get the feeling like that it was sort of like a throwback movie mm -hmm. that, that was, he could have gone two ways after that. He could have kept making existence, uh, two, three, four, and five, or he could have done what he did, which is start making more personal and, and universal movies that don't appeal only to, uh, be movie aficionados or horror freaks, you know, he, and there were those elements. It's not like it was a, a huge cutoff right there. I mean, there were definitely he made in Butterfly in the eighties or early nineties, mm -hmm. I guess, and um, other movies that have that don't don't have a lot to do with uh, with with horror or, or science fiction. But still, I I, I really like what he's done. I, I I think he's he's a really good Hollywood director. And there aren't many of those, so I, I would I, I I think he's definitely on on the right track, and 
I'm sure he'll bounce back from making one shitty movie. Well, and the funny thing is, you know, in in essence, he's really not a Hollywood director. He's always been in Toronto. And right. I would actually, in, in my opinion, I think it kind of flipped because I think he was a Hollywood director to some extent until his recent fare because mm. now he's getting more, uh, well, he had a lot of Canadian financing early on and then he had a lot of studio help. I mean, The Fly was a 20th Century Fox movie and all the mm -hmm. way through and Butterfly, which was a, a David Geffen produced movie through Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, the crash, the good crash, <laughs> the great yeah. crash uh, in 96 was a big controversy because it was uh, New Line Cinema. Things fluctuated and then most of his money seemed to be European money uh, yeah. towards the uh, to the present. When I say Hollywood, I'm, I'm speaking really generically. I don't not necessarily about where it was made, but just more of the uh, the broad the broad the broadness of the uh, the themes you know so I well yeah I think he has Hollywood access yeah it, it it's it's hard to, like I think my perspective is probably because because I'm so old that I remember when <laughs> science fiction and horror were much more of a ghetto than they are than they have been in the last 20 years you know what, what, I, what do you mean ghetto uh, like something that uh, respected uh, mainstream directors would not tangle with. Now it's like something that, you know, in in the old days it was when when uh, when say Kubrick did two thousand one that was, you know, or or um, Clockwork Orange that was that was a huge thing because it, <clears throat> it was like science fiction that was uh, at the highest level, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, is and it was a, it, still differentiated between all the B movies. Now it, B movies aren't B movies anymore. You know, there's a, you, you, you've got people like Tarantino totally shaking that up. Where a, a you know a B movie could cost way more than than uh, than a, a mainstream drama. drama. Yeah, yeah, serious drama. <laughs> when, when you when is it is it similar to you know traditionally when you have Lord of the Rings and fantasy stuff, um, even if it's well made, it doesn't have the I don't know, respect and weight that other dramas does. But, you know, last couple of years on HBO, uh, Game of Thrones mm -hmm. really took it to another level. I mean, it is still fantasy, I guess, to some level, but right. it put that genre upside down, and I, I really, really like it, you know? Yeah. And it, and uh, is, is that the kind of stuff you're, you're talking about? Yeah, I, I like that. It's sort of like... Well, it's almost like reinventing that type of uh, shows. Yeah. I, I mean, on, on the other hand, it, I it doesn't give me the automatic cachet of being, you know, one of the cool kids who understands this stuff. You know, now everybody understands it, and it's it's much it's better, you know, it, because you, there's just so many different levels of it. But I, I I just remember at the time it was a real badge of exclusion to be into movies like that. Um, well, I'll ask you a couple more questions to you, Dave and Rick, and I guess we better finish because I'm running out of time on this chip. Um, so what is this now? Um, I got about, I got 10 minutes on this one. Um, going back to Stallone and Schwarzenegger, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to add anything clever on it, but what was a movie within the last 10 years where Stallone plays small town police chief? Copland. You know, I, I really enjoyed that, and and he wasn't like a superhero cop or easily killed people when he was fighting. I kind of like he was not a perfect guy. He was a small, a small cop, 
and um, I really like the fact that he's he's finally playing his age at that. Yeah. Uh, did, did you did you guys watch that movie? Yeah, and... I can't remember it. I, I know I saw it, but I can't remember. It. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, last week when I told you about my first internship, one of the reasons why I applied for that particular company with uh, James Mangold was because I quite liked his first film, Heavy, and then subsequently the movie Copland. Oh, he did that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I forget. Um, that's the conversation I had with Steve Catani, which mm. uh, you, you was you were in part of it. Well, I know you're a big fan of Righteous Kill. <laughs> oh. Well, well, Escape Plan is this year's Righteous Kill. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was thinking of when you were talking. <laughs> if I didn't tell you guys, uh, what was the Dangerous Method? Yeah. Within the last two years, if I didn't tell you the director, you were actually watching the movie. Could you have known this is a Cronenberg movie? Yeah. You can. Yeah. I don't know how you guys do it. I, 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 I was, I watched it because I'm a fan of Kira Knightley, but um, to go from the guy who made The Fly to Dangerous Method, I don't think I would have made a connection. Like, why? That's the same director. I don't, I don't think I could have done it. Could you have done it? If I showed the movie without showing any credit, would you have? If you told me, you know, if you gave me some clues, I, I, I might not, you know, I might not know if I went into it cold, but how could you go into it cold? So mm -hmm. You're going to know something. I see. But yeah, he's definitely got, he's got a recognizable style even that even dates. Well, it I guess it pretty much started with uh, Rabbit. You know, the, it, the the stuff before that is uh, a little hard to sell people on because there's just not the there's not a plot. Oh, there no, actually no no I'm sorry the they came from within would be the I guess the beginning. Um, but yeah. It, He's, it's just, it's amazing, like, it's just so distinctive, you know. He has a, just this seriousness about him. And it's, I love the fact that he can layer that seriousness over stuff that's totally absurd and ridiculous and, and make you take it seriously. And then that, and, and thus to think about these themes that other directors don't, don't even touch. I see. I did want to mention, you know, Dangerous Method. Well, I mean, one thing, too, is, like, the visual style, especially from Dead Ringers, the Jeremy Irons movie about twins, mm -hmm. twin gynecologists. <laughs> from that point on, he had been always working with the same... Oh, that's a Cronenberg movie, too? That's also Cronenberg. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. From that point on, he had always worked Creepy with the same, movie. Uh, the same British cinematographer, Peter Shashitsky, who... Cronenberg uh, uh, even says this all the time. Like, he's the guy who did the camera work for Empire Strikes Back. Mm. And... The Will Smith movie After Earth, I found out recently. <laughs> but uh, but it, it's funny because I like Will Smith. I'm just I don't know why I'm laughing. All right, go ahead. Um, so I think there's a visual sense that is so tied into Cronenberg because of that cinematographer. I bring that up though because A Dangerous Method is interesting because the thing that I can't shake out of my head, what the bathhouse scene was in Eastern Promises, mm. I swear to God. Kira Knightley's teeth are to Dangerous <laughs> Method. Because early on, as you recall... How dare you, Dave? <laughs> I am going to punch you in. Oh, no, no. But it's the way she, ex it's I the love way her. she accentuates it. Because uh, I think it, her first big scene in the movie, like in minute 10, mm -hmm. I was so disturbed by how she was kind of going through her little mini seizure talking about during her little uh, uh, psychosis talk. Mm -hmm. uh, she, she, Do you remember this? Like she goes into this weird thing where she kind of convulses slightly and her teeth are seemingly popping out of her mouth and it is so disturbing and that, <laughs> that is such a Cronenberg 
touch <laughs> to, to, to make her just get into this weird uh, physicality like that. Yeah. Well, Actually, I, 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 I to accentuate something that's kind of notably maybe, uh, you know. I, I only have five minutes, so uh, quickly, if, if, if I know this is a really silly list, and I know most of you probably don't like it, but, you know, if, if three movies, the only only you could watch only three movies uh, to someone new watching Cronenberg movies. What, what what three movies would you tell them? These are the three that you need to watch by Cronenberg. <laughs> um, well, my three I think would be The Fly, The Brood, and Videodrome. Uh, the one with James Woods, just because I think those are inherently in their DNA really fun genre movies first and foremost mm -hmm. I think it's really it's really easy to just enjoy watching them and they're and they're still very visceral yeah it's it's for it's, you Rick uh, I I wouldn't put the fly up there I, I think um, that's not really one of my favorites although it, it is a it is a great genre movie but I think uh, I might put scanners in, even though there's some thing, there's some definitely big flaws, uh, and and also we're leaving out, you know, probably the last twenty years of his career. Mm -hmm. to talk about this stuff, but um, but yeah, definitely the Brood and and Videodrome, and I, I would say probably Scanners. I it it's so it's one of those movies that it was kind of so groundbreaking at the time that it might um, seem old hat to people who've seen like RoboCop or other things now that are they kind of deal with like this kind of oppressive corporate science fiction uh you know thriller kind of thing but at the time it, it was it was really unprecedented um I, f I feel bad because i think video drum i it i didn't i didn't quite get it i watched it really young too but uh, while i'm watching i feel like this is an important piece of work but i, I couldn't possibly tell people why but i did enjoy watching that um I don't. I don't know the old other ones you guys mentioned. I I can only tell you <laughs> generic ones. History of Violence. I really like that a lot. Yeah. And, did you uh, see Crash? I forget if you mentioned. I it. I did watch it and um, I liked it, but it was just so creepy. It was so hard to masturbate to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's not hard. Believe me. <laughs> but I would uh, think M Butterfly would have. Really I haven't seen that one. It'd be very important for I, you. I really like yeah. Butterfly. It, I, I thought it was really good too. Yeah, I think it's underrated. I've only seen it on this like uh, Chinese bootleg VCD <laughs> that I bought. <laughs> wow, VCD. Yeah, I didn't expect you to say VCD. That is old school. Yeah. Um, I guess we're uh, wrapping down. I, I'd like to do another one. I got, I got to get the other chip, but um, I, I apologize. I'm sure this podcast didn't even cover two-thirds of the uh, other great work and I'm just not familiar with it but I, I, I just thought it was fun for me it's just I never thought I would put David Cronenberg with Jackie Chan and Sam Sentence <laughs> but um, I know there's a lot of these masturbation going on mental masturbation but anyway um, I, I guess um, Dave any upcoming project or what's your uh, Twitter account uh, my Twitter account is the David Chen, and my last name is C H I E N. So it's like dog in French. Okay. And I'm always working on movie things and uh, and uh, my own projects. And for now, I'm in LA, and you'll probably find me at the Cine Family. And shame on you, Sasha Gray. We contacted you, and you were supposed to do something with Dave, and you didn't do it. But uh, anyway. Wait, are we, we going to call her out on the podcast? No, no, I'm just teasing. I, I, I love Sasha. Um, and her si older sister. Um, 
Rick, um, thanks for doing this. I definitely want to, um, eventually when we put this up, I want people to start contacting you about Japan. And uh, maybe next one we should talk about Japanese cinema. I'm kind of curious what you guys think. We'll just go back and forth with a bunch of different Japanese directors next and uh, see where it may take. If anybody uh, who has in Japan has a job uh, for a bald white guy to pontificate about uh, movies that uh, he knows nothing about, then look me up on Twitter. The the next Donald Ritchie (laughs) (laughs) arriving in Japan. Donald Ritchie's retarded. Kid brother, <laughs> um, we have a minute, so it's uh, Toe Stubber uh, Twitter account, yes. Um, T O E S T U B B E R. So that's in Twitter account. And if you for whatever reason can't contact him, contact me regarding Rick Hall uh, getting a job or living in Japan. It's dumbyoshi at gmail.com. All right, guys, thanks for listening. And then uh, let's, let's cover a Japanese stuff, which is sounds so generic. But, um, <laughs> we can do it all in one hour. Yeah, yeah, we could do it in an hour and a half. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Thanks.